afford anything, but not everything. Every choice that you make has a trade-off against something else. Saying yes to one thing implicitly means saying no to an alternative. And that is true for any limited resource that you're trying to manage. Whether it's your money, your time, your attention, your energy, or your focus. So, what matters most to you? And how do you make daily life decisions in accordance? Answering these two questions is a lifetime practice, and that is what this podcast is here to explore. My name is Paula Pant. I'm the host of the Afford Anything podcast. And today, Dr. John Hale joins us to talk about sustainable investing. Dr. Hale is a chartered financial analyst and the global head of sustainability research for Morningstar. In his role, he directs Morningstar's research on sustainable investing, which began with the launch of the Morningstar Sustainability Rating for Funds in 2016. This interview was inspired by a question that we received from one of the members of our community, a woman by the name of Lily. She called in with a question about sustainable investing, and we originally intended to answer Lily's question in the same way that we answer almost all of the questions that we receive, which are during the Ask Paula episodes. But as I was in the process of answering Lily's question, I realized that that question deserved more than a 10-minute response. It deserved its own episode. So let's listen to Lily's question right now, and after that, we'll bring on John Hale from Morningstar to talk about the landscape of ESG funds and sustainable investing. Hey, Paula. My name is Lily, and I love your show. I've been listening for a few months. I'm super inspired by you, both being a woman in real estate and your personal growth emphasis. It's super inspiring. Thank you. And my question is about ethical investing. Uh, when I asked the retirement person at my first nursing job 13 years ago about socially responsible investing options, he told me that there was one, but he advised strongly against it because he said it wouldn't do well. And I wasn't willing to compromise my values, so I chose it, and it did do fine. A few years back, I called Charles Schwab asking for a socially responsible fund, and their advisors were mostly stumped. Uh, the first one said they didn't really exist and that they were just labeled that way, but there was no regulation on them, so you couldn't be sure what you were getting. And I finally got someone who was able to help me learn how to search for a fund that did do well and was labeled socially responsible, and I could see what was in there. And I got that fund, and I'm happy with it. And later on, I got a Betterment account because they offered an SRI version, and I didn't see that elsewhere. And I'm also happy with that account. So I'm wondering a few things. Uh, why do I never hear anything about ethical investing in the FIRE movement, and how do we get there? Is there a third-party reviewer of these funds? And are these funds labeled well, or are they essentially a scam? Thank you. Lily, that's a fantastic question. To answer that, here is Morningstar's Global Head of Sustainability Research. And by the way, just as a note, we recorded this interview before the pandemic. I feel like that needs to be a disclaimer on almost all content that was created pre-coronavirus or pre-when it became a really big thing in the pre-the month of March. So as you listen to this uh, conversation about investing, if this conversation about investing sounds like it was recorded before the stock market crash and before the pandemic struck. That's because it was. So with that, here is John Hale. Hi, John. 
Hi, Paula. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Pleasure to be here today. John, I wanted to talk to you about socially responsible investing, and I wanted to kick it off, actually, by asking you to make sense of some of the alphabet soup around this topic, because we've got so many acronyms. There's SRI, there's ESG funds, there's a CSR. And so let's start, before we get into a, a deeper conversation about socially responsible funds, let's start by first laying the groundwork, defining some of the acronyms. Can you talk about socially responsible investing, SRI? What is that? What does that mean? Well, socially responsible investing is really a term that refers to a particular type of investing in which uh, investors want to add an element or a dimension of social responsibility to the investing process. You could contrast that today with another term or another uh, group of initials. It's not even really an acronym since you can't pronounce ESG other than to say ESG. But <laughs> today we, we refer more often, it seems like, to ESG, which stands for environmental, social, and corporate governance issues. And these are the kinds of considerations that I guess you could say that socially responsible investing actually tries to incorporate into an investment process. So you'll hear ESG and SRI in some ways used relatively interchangeably these days. To, to me, it's I wouldn't worry about the specifics as much as thinking they mean more, more or less the same thing. Also, we hear even more of sort of umbrella term sustainable investing sometimes used for SRI or ESG. And then CSR, corporate social responsibility, how is that defined? Well, you know, CSR, it's interesting. Co corporate social responsibility refers really to companies and how they address this concept of social responsibility, which is really about how they relate to their stakeholders and the world around them over and above their pursuit of profits. And clearly what we find uh, is that some corporations are better at this than others. You know, many companies today put out CSR reports, although a lot of times they're now called sustainability reports, that, you know, try to highlight all the good things they've done for their stakeholders and communities. But the whole process of sustainable investing using ESG analysis really goes beyond just what a company says it does to much more, you know, detailed analysis of, of uh, how a company's doing on the most financially material ESG issues that it faces in its industry, how well it's performing relative to its peers and so on. Mm. I want to ask you about that detailed analysis in a minute. But before we get there, can you, in terms of laying the groundwork, can you outline some of the different types of sustainable or socially responsible funds that are out there? Like, what's the current landscape? Yeah, sure. So a timely question, because I've just written a report called the Sustainable Funds U.S. Landscape Report. <laughs> and in that report, what I pose is that there, you can think of kind of a taxonomy of sustainable funds. And by funds, I mean open-end mutual funds as well as exchange-traded funds. I think of them in, in sort of th three parts, and then there's a fourth type that's sort of uh, like a sustainable fund, but maybe not quite. Um, and so I think of uh, sustainable funds as being what I call ESG-focused funds. And so these are funds that they may pursue from a sort of investment strategy standpoint. They may pursue a growth strategy, a value strategy. They could be passive funds or or actively managed funds, but the common element that they have is that they put front and center this analysis of 
ESG factors when they make investment decisions. So that means when they're selecting securities, as well as when they are constructing the overall portfolio, they're considering how well the companies in a portfolio are uh, handling the various ESG risks and opportunities that, that they face. In addition to that, some of these funds may also use broad-based exclusions. That's something that's a little more of a traditional SRI type of activity, but you still might have an ESG fund that excludes, say, tobacco stocks or gun stocks or controversial military weapons uh, manufacturers, things like that. On top of also have using this ESG analysis on a on a routine basis, another thing that I think is very pertinent and that people should really know about and consider when they're thinking about investing this way is that most ESG-focused funds also actively engage with the companies they own. They're shareholders. That means they have a voice in company management. And so they will engage with companies around various ESG types of issues that they might think the company uh, needs to improve on. And they may even take it so far as to sponsor a shareholder resolution that could be voted on at a company's annual general meeting that puts the question in front of all shareholders. Shareholders. And this is a way, and I, we, we can talk about this a little in a little bit more detail, but this is a way that sustainable investing, I think, is very impactful beyond just uh, the financial returns uh, element of it. So ESG focus funds. In addition to that, we have what I call impact and thematic funds. And so these are funds that in addition to their kind of underlying ESG focus, they may be focused also on a broader theme. So there are gender diversity funds that really focus their analysis on making sure that all the companies in a portfolio uh, have uh, you know good strong diversity policies. They have women in in executive suite and women in, on the boards. You know there are also quite a number of uh, fossil fuel free funds out there. So there there are different themes, sustainability themes. I guess I would say that fall into this category as well as funds that just are interested in demonstrating to their investors that. Here is our assessment of the overall impact of the companies in this portfolio. Uh, and so they'll do things like try to measure the overall carbon emissions of the companies in this portfolio as opposed to, say, a standard market-based portfolio and you know other impact metrics along those lines. The third type of sustainable fund out there is what I call a sustainable sector fund. And those would be funds that are a little more focused around kind of a quasi-sector. There's no like officially defined sustainable sector, like an energy sector, utilities, et cetera. But these are funds that really focus on, I would say, companies that are creating products or services that will you know, hasten the transition to a just, sustainable, low-carbon economy. And so you can think of renewable energy in that regard. You can think of environmental services companies and those involved in things like um, enhancing energy efficiency and so on. So ESG focus, impact thematic, and sustainable sector funds. The other type of fund or the other type of thing that you might want to consider out there is is what I call ESG consideration funds. When I talk about the sustainable funds, it's a relatively small portion of the overall universe of funds and ETFs out there. Now, I think we probably have 
too many <laughs> uh, funds in the overall universe. There's seven or 8,000 uh, available to U.S. investors, only about 300 sustainable funds. But one of the things that I've noticed in the last uh, couple of years is that a lot of conventional funds out there are adopting ESG as a literally as a consideration in their investment process. So they're saying, gee, you know, we're starting to see that a lot of companies' financial fortunes could have to do with how well they are managing their ESG risks. And so we also need to start thinking about that. It may not be the central focus of our decision-making, but it's an element of our decision-making. And so just last year, more than 500 pre-existing conventional mutual funds in the United States added language in their prospectus saying that, yes, we now do consider ESG factors in our investment process. So to me, that's one step better than most conventional funds that just don't really mention it at all and presumably aren't all that concerned about it to this uh, next step of ESG consideration funds. So if you have mutual funds that you're already invested in that are not sustainable funds with ESG focus or impact focus or a sector focus, you may have a fund that has at least uh, added this idea of, yes, we consider ESG factors now in our investment process. Mm. What level of churn is there inside of these funds? Well, I mean, it would vary. I think in general, the sustainable funds have probably lower turnover than funds overall because you know a lot of the focus is really on long-term investing. I mean it's it's one of the things that sustainable investors want to see companies do. So, you know, we're in this era Paula of you know short-termism, you know, where investors or CEOs of companies will claim that well our investors are forcing us to focus on short-term quarter-by-quarter earnings growth. And gosh, we would like to uh, have a broader, longer-term perspective that focuses more on our on all of our stakeholders and not just on this short-term profit maximization. But, you know, our darn shareholders are kind of forcing us into this short-term perspective. Well, sustainable investors are doing just the opposite. They're saying to companies, no, we would like for you to manage towards long-term sustainable stakeholder value. We want you to take all your stakeholders into consideration as you manage the company. We want to focus on long-term. We want this to be literally a long-term sustainable investment for, for our fund. And so I think the real interesting impact that we're seeing and I think we'll see from a more and more sustainable investors is that a company will start to see in its investor base more investors that have this kind of long-term perspective and it will allow them to take a broader view on how they manage the company. And I think over the long run, that'll make uh, for more successful, more sustainable companies, both in terms of you know their sustainable impact on society and the environment, but also more sustainable earnings and profits to shareholders over the long run. So Because of that general perspective, I think you would see with uh, sustainable funds as a group, possibly lower turnover than mutual funds overall. As you were describing the various types of funds, one thing that struck me is that there are some funds, as you mentioned, that exclude behaviors that they dislike, such as funds that exclude tobacco, for example. And there are other funds that focus on 
including companies with behaviors that they like, such as companies that pursue the development of renewable energy. How does that shake out in terms of the landscape? Is one more prevalent than the other? Is the trend going more in one direction or the other? So the trend is going towards this sort of comprehensive ESG analysis of every part of the portfolio. So what that might mean for a typical, you know, ESG focus fund is that if you're looking at a company that's creating important sustainable products and services that are really going to enhance the transition to a low carbon, more sustainable economy, then those types of companies will be favored in an ESG focused portfolio or then especially in an impact focused portfolio. But at the same time, there may be a sort of, uh, I don't know, a core part of those portfolios where the analysis is really more about, you know, companies that you need to have in the portfolio because you want to have a broad-based diversified portfolio. So they could be companies that we think of in everyday terms, whether they're a Microsoft or an Apple or you know a pharmaceutical company or something like that. And in those cases, the evaluation is really around who within these industries, what companies are doing the best at managing their ESG uh, risks. You know, they may not be companies that have particular sustainable products, but, you know, how are they managing these various ESG issues? So that's a big part of it. And then in addition to that, you may have funds with a few exclusions. So I, you know, overall, it's moved away from exclusion base towards what I would call ESG integration and impact. The very first time I made an investment in a mutual fund was in the 1990s, and it was in a socially responsible fund. But the definition of that fund was basically that it had a set of exclusions. I know tobacco was one of them, a set of product exclusions. And then beyond that, it was more or less like any other fund. So Mm -hmm. that's quite different today. You've mentioned the phrase managing ESG risk a few times. What exactly is ESG risk? The way this is looked at in investment terms today is increasingly in terms of ESG risk, although I would say you could think of it in terms of ESG risk on the one hand and then sort of sustainable impact on the other as sort of two dimensions here. But ESG risk, here's kind of the story of ESG risk. When I described the fund that I invested in the 1990s, the idea there was to invest in companies that are doing well on this just general on the around the general concept of social responsibility of corporate social responsibility. But we didn't really have the means to evaluate companies very well, except in terms of like, oh, if we knew a company is primarily producing cigarettes, we uh, no, that's not a company we want to invest in. But what about all those other companies out there? We didn't really have any systematic, a lot of systematic data to back up any kind of analysis of a company. You know, we'd have some impressions of maybe a company is a polluter or something like that, but nothing really to go on. And so what we've seen is the development of what I would call ESG uh, research and analysis. And literally starting from just a couple of small companies that started doing this in the 1990s to the point where over the last 10 years, we have extremely sophisticated and robust measures of how companies are doing industry by industry in terms of addressing their ESG risks on the one hand and perhaps opportunities on the other. So to give you some examples of ESG risk, you can almost think of any industry as having 
kind of a unique mix of potential ESG risks that companies have to deal with. And the reason they have to deal with it is not just feel-good stuff. It's that they might actually have material financial implications for you if you're not dealing with them adequately. And so probably the most obvious example would be in the fossil fuel industry. Obviously, um, in any kind of energy company that deals with fossil fuels, the the main ESG-related risk comes with carbon emissions and how well is this company able to manage carbon emissions because at some point they're going to be regulated and they're going to be costly. Already at this point today, they are becoming costly in terms of customers turning away from using some of these uh, products and services. So that is a big ESG risk for, you know, an oil and gas company, but also things like pollution, how well a company handles, you know, its oil fields and extraction and what's its impact on the environment. That's another issue there. Uh, Worker safety is an issue for them. So these are ESG issues that are relevant to, say, an oil and gas company. You turn attention, say, to a retail apparel company. The, The key ESG risk there tends to be, for the larger companies especially, how well are they overseeing their supply chain? What are worker conditions there? Is there child labor, slave labor conditions there? How are they overseeing it? How are they monitoring this kind of activity? That's a big ESG issue in the apparel industry. You turn to internet companies and social media companies, clearly customer privacy and data security is of paramount importance there. But also issues like Human capital, how you're how are you managing your human capital? It, there's a lot of industries out there today that require top-notch, well-trained, well-educated individuals to work for them. And what we're increasingly hearing today is that those folks want to work for companies that are doing good. And so if a company's, you know, sort of overall is not interested in or focused on generally speaking, broad corporate social responsibility issues, and in particular, the the actual material ESG issues that it faces, then you could have a problem on your human capital front because people may not want to work for you, may not be as attractive and in an environment where you're like at keen competition to, to attract the best and the brightest, that can be a big deal. So ESG risks, in this context, it's risks to the future prospects of the company as it relates to ESG-related topics. Yeah, and you can think of it as material risk. So every sort of corporate responsibility issue that might be out there is not necessarily material from a financial standpoint to a company or might not potentially be material. So when we talk about the ESG risk footprint for each industry out there, Um, We're talking about issues that we think are going to be or or potentially could be, um, if not managed appropriately, uh, material to that company's actual financial uh, well-being. But the other thing I would just add, because uh, among customers today and among workers, employees, there are companies face these growing expectations for, you know, responsible behavior, then there are some issues that might not appear to be material on the surface that 
actually are because of these growing expectations. So to give an example, there are quite a lot of companies out there for whom, say, carbon emissions are not necessarily that material to their financial fortunes. Like, you know, a company, for instance, like uh, the, like I work for Morningstar, I mean, our carbon emissions as a company are not that great. So it's, it's not like if we had to all of a sudden pay more for carbon, it wouldn't be a big material issue necessarily. But what if our employees say, you know what, why aren't we buying renewable energy? That's something we should be doing just as a way to be responsible. And if that's something that helps people come to work here and think, wow, this is a great place to work and I want to work here longer because of that and be more productive, then it does have a material impact. So there's a lot of ways, sort of direct and indirect, that ESG issues are are material today. And the big difference between an investment process that incorporates ESG versus one that doesn't, even if it's just doing it on a kind of low level or, or a light touch, is that a lot of these ESG issues, they aren't necessarily discernible through traditional financial analysis. So in order to get some kind of a feel for you know, how ESG might be affecting the stock price of a company, you need today, I think it's just kind of becoming a required thing for all investors to at least consider ESG risk when they look at a company. How do fund managers conduct ESG analysis? Well, it's there's a variety of ways, but I'd say that generally speaking, it starts off with collecting the data, the ESG data on companies. And, you know, luckily today we have, there's an entire sub-industry out there of ESG data providers. Morningstar owns uh, 45% of one called Sustainalytics. Um, there's another big one out there called MSCI ESG Research. But in addition to that, there's like a, about a dozen others that are collecting this kind of information about companies. And so the data are readily available now in ways that they just absolutely weren't even 10 years ago on virtually all publicly traded companies, increasingly even on uh, private equities. And so you start with that. You start with some basic ratings and basic schemes that help you understand what the material issues are in a given industry. There's a group out there called SASB, Sustainable Accounting Standards Board. You can go to SASB, S-A-S-B.org, and they have what they call a materiality matrix where you can see um, industry by industry what SASB has considered to be the most material ESG issues facing any given industry. So it's actually quite interesting if you want to really, you know, kind of nerd out on this stuff. But, uh, you know, so a typical fund manager will start with that. And at that point, it kind of varies. Some fund managers will say, okay, use this to narrow my universe. I want to make sure that I have, say, I'm leaving out the ESG laggards, uh, you know, from my universe. And after that, I'm just going to pick stocks the way I would otherwise choose them. Some are a little more focused, have a little tighter focus on saying, like, I want to draw from the best quartile or the best half of sustainability or ESG performers industry by industry. Then they go about a standard investment process. If they're value managers, they want to see an undervalued company or stock. If they're growth managers, they want to see what the prospects for longer term growth are. A third way of doing it is focusing really on sustainability opportunities. So looking for companies who 
for whom their competitive advantage is somehow tied up with uh, sustainability concerns or considerations. So there's a variety of ways that ESG is incorporated into an investment process, whether it's just a traditional fund that's using ESG kind of as a just one among many, or even whether it's an ESG-focused fund that's uh, really using it to, as a centerpiece of every single investment decision. We'll come back to this episode after this word from our sponsors. You know, spring is a good time for new beginnings. It's a great time for spring cleaning, for planning outdoor activities, and for going through your financial life to make sure that everything is in place that you need. Everything that you need is in place. And the thing about life insurance is that shopping for life insurance can be part of your financial planning for the year. And Policy Genius is there to help with that. Policy Genius has licensed award-winning agents and technology. What does that mean? It means you can, in just a few clicks, compare quotes from top insurers. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius works for you, not for the insurance companies. They don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another. And they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Home is where you go to relax, to recover from the day, to get ready for the next day. And you want it to feel nice, but you don't want to spend a lot of money. You need something that's in budget, something affordable, but also something that fits your style and taste. Wayfair has you covered. They have everything from appliances to furniture to art to rugs for your living room, your bedroom, your deck or patio. I have shelves from them that are hanging in my bathroom right now that they look really nice, but they're also super functional for storage. I have a daybed from them that's in my living room. Again, very functional, multi-purpose. You can get items from Wayfair for your own home. You can do it for a rental property. They have a massive, massive selection. So regardless of what your taste is, they've got a huge variety of styles and it's very budget friendly. You'll find pieces that look good, that fit your style at a great price. And they have fast and free shipping even on the big stuff. Every style is welcome in the Waberhood. Visit Wayfair.com or get the Wayfair mobile app. That's W-A-Y-F-A-I-R dot com. Wayfair. Every style, every home. Are you just doing it all at your company and you're thinking there's got to be a better way to, to get this all done? Well, JustWorks makes it easier for you to start, run, and grow a business. Let me tell you how JustWorks can help your business. You see, great people are at the core of every business, and JustWorks can help you attract and retain top talent. So with JustWorks, you have access to medical, dental, and vision insurance and benefits, plus benefits that include wellness and mental health support, fertility and family building, even financial planning. And when you or your employees have a question about setting up benefits or paychecks, their team of experts is standing by 24-7 to help. JustWorks gives you these HR tools that comply with state payroll tax requirements, keep up with state labor laws, and access a variety of health insurance plans in any state. Regardless of whether you and your team are working remotely or in-person or hybrid or some combination thereof, JustWorks makes it simple 
to hire and manage remote employees across all 50 states. It's a cloud-based platform that allows managers and employees alike to quickly and securely access payroll, benefits, and other HR functionality. Learn more about JustWorks and how they can help you get more done by visiting justworks.com slash podcast. That's justworks.com slash podcast. Now, you mentioned that there are some ESG-focused funds that are issue-specific. So, for example, fossil fuel-free funds or funds that specifically make a priority about gender within the company and making sure that there's a good number of women who are executives or on the board. Assuming, though, that in the context of ESG-focused funds that are not issue-specific, how do fund managers think about? What's the framework for processing a company that might score very highly on certain issues like carbon emissions, but then perhaps they'd score less highly on other issues like women in the C-suite or vice versa? Right. So it depends. If you haven't identified one of those types of themes as being, you know, a primary consideration, then you're looking at the overall picture on each and every company that you're considering there. Now, in some cases, we're also seeing, when you look at it at the portfolio level, the portfolio construction level, some ESG-focused managers want to say, okay, I'm going to invest in every single sector of the economy just like a broadly diversified fund, uh, you know, a broadly diversified, say, index fund would. But within each one of those sectors and industries, I'm going with the best in class. Mm -hmm. And that best in class is based not just on increasingly based for most managers, based not just on all possible ESG issues, but on the material issues. So, you know, say now diversity, I, I, you know, I think diversity is, is an issue that broadly speaking applies across the board. So it would be a material issue, I think, to be considered no matter what sector you're focused on. But when you're deciding what energy or utility companies to put in your portfolio, carbon emissions would become a bigger deal for those than it would be for, say, you know, your technology exposure. So issues kind of rise and fall based on their materiality relative to a particular industry. So that's a big difference. So these these more thematic funds, though, do tend to kind of apply whatever the sort of issue focus or, or thematic focus is across the board. And so, you know, a fossil fuel free, although, or a low carb, let's say there are funds out there that sort of say we're a low carbon themed fund, which means that across the board, we're looking for not only the lowest carbon companies in these uh, areas where it's really important to them materially, but we're also looking, you know, in retail and other places for companies that are also buying renewable energy and really taking a stand in that direction. You know, that's happening a lot in the retail industry, the targets of the world, the Walmarts, they're buying renewable energy and they, their energy consumption is a pretty big deal uh, for them, but it's not as crucial to their financials as that is for heavier industry type sectors and energy and utilities. There are certain industries in which the industry as a whole contains some degree of controversy. How are those industries handled in this landscape? 
So there's really two elements to that. One is, again, kind of going back to my best-in-class concept where you're looking at pharmaceutical companies and you say, well, how well, you know, and product governance is really that big material ESG issue. It kind of covers things like, is the product safe? Is the product uh, marketed appropriately? Is it accessible to the populations that need it at a reasonable price? So yeah, those are the key issues with a lot of pharmaceuticals. So a typical... ESG-focused fund would say, well, you know, I'm kind of on a relative basis. I'm going to pick the best in class here. I'm going to, I'm not going to pick the ones that are the laggards. And, and there is a range of performance on these issues. So that's number one. Number two, the pharmaceutical companies that are in my portfolio, I'm going to monitor for these things. And that's where we get back to engagement. And why engagement is so important. If there's an issue that a pharma has that's in my portfolio, as a shareholder, I can call them up and say, you need to improve your performance on this and we need to talk about it. We need to sit down and talk about it. And I really can't emphasize enough how important and potentially impactful engagements are with companies because it now it used to be the case that this was considered a real pain. You know, a company is like, oh, I got these SRI shareholders. A lot of times they were like these um, institutional faith-based shareholders, literally nuns, <laughs> you know, from Catholic investors uh, investing on behalf of a hospital or a church or a parish somewhere. You know, it was kind of a pain. Like, ah, what do they want? What do they want us to do? This is all very inconvenient. Well, today it's really changed. And so more and more companies want to know what, their sustainable investor base is concerned about because it helps them understand more generally speaking what their stakeholders are going to be concerned about, what kind of behaviors they're engaging in that could have reputational impact to the company. So engagements are important. They often in involve not just one fund, but a coalition of investors. And they also come with at least an implicit threat that if the company doesn't want to address this issue, then we'll propose a shareholder resolution and we'll put it to the shareholders on a vote at the annual general meeting. Companies typically, historically, have not liked to see that because it's like you're waving a flag, you know, a red flag in front of every single investor out there saying, look at what this company's doing in this area. Do you agree or disagree with us that they should, you know, address it? And so this has become something that's a very important impact of sustainable investing. And it's something that I think individual investors who even who have just modest amounts of money to invest ought to consider this as a way of sort of adding the dollars that they have to invest to this broader movement, really, of investors that I think are helping companies become more sustainable. Let's talk more about shareholder engagement. Are there any examples of big wins that have happened recently or major changes that companies or industries have made? Well, one thing that we've just put out another uh, report with a colleague of mine called the ESG proxy voting trends. And what we're finding is that investors in proxy voting on voting on shareholder resolutions related to ESG issues over the past five years, the average support of the 50 largest fund families out there has risen to 46% from 27%. So typical large fund family last year voted 
in favor of 46% of the ESG resolutions that were out there. That's a big increase over just five years. The resolutions typically are about things like asking companies to release to shareholders or prepare for shareholders a climate risk assessment. What is the risk to this company of climate change? And a couple of years ago at the Exxon Mobil shareholder meeting, more than 50% of shareholders, a majority of shareholders voted in favor of a resolution asking Exxon to do that. The same thing happened at Occidental Petroleum. So just to put that in context, typically over the years, you know, going back, shareholder resolutions, I think, first appeared just a few of them on these kinds of issues as early as the 1970s, but they're fairly few and far between. And typically their support level would only be, you know, maybe 5% or 10% of shareholders. So to see shareholder resolutions today getting majority votes is quite something, you know, it's a big sea change. So the Exxon Mobil and Occidental Petroleum What happened in last year's proxy season was that there was another flurry of shareholder resolutions proposed at companies asking them to prepare climate risk reports, and almost all of them were withdrawn by shareholders after engaging with companies that said, hey, can we sit down and talk about this, and here's our timeline, yes, we will release a climate risk report would you consider in exchange for us committing to you to do that, withdrawing your resolution? And so typically in this process, that's what's happened. So we've seen because of investor pressure, a lot of companies now focusing on this idea that, okay, this is something that's important to our investors. And frankly, we're realizing it's important to us as well to make sure we understand the growing risks of climate change to our business. That's a big thing. We're also seeing more and more support for companies to do a better job divulging their expenditures on lobbying and campaign contributions. And that also is connected with climate change because we have a lot of companies out there now saying, oh, we're on board with the idea of climate change. We we agree something needs to be done about it, but they turn around and help sponsor trade organizations in Washington that are opposed to climate change. And you know, and addressing the issue in a very effective way. And so there's disconnect there and we're calling that to your attention. And so we've seen companies recently resigning uh, some of their memberships of trade organizations that have been uh, climate deniers. So there's that. I mean, the diversity issue is one that's very much alive with uh, engagement efforts. Any company out there that doesn't have uh, women on its board or or at least 10% women on the board and has a commitment to getting that up to 30% um, increasingly are seeing their directors being voted against uh, at the annual general meeting. And so uh, shareholder engagement, I think, has become more and more effective. It's a much bigger deal than it used to be. I guess I would just reiterate, though, that it's not all adversarial. We're seeing a, a lot more companies appreciating coming to the table and being able to become more aware of sustainability issues. A lot of times it's also kind of connected with people inside a company who also want to see that company do better on these issues. So virtually every company has a chief sustainability officer now. 
And so they're especially interested in this, the exact same kinds of issues. And so it's this uh, kind of virtuous circle between all your stakeholders now that your customers, your a lot of times even your business partners and, and your workers and your investors all want to see and encourage a company to improve its uh, sustainability profile. If a person listening to this wanted to become a more engaged shareholder, how would they begin? Do they show up to the annual general meeting? What steps can they take? That's a great question. So it's possible for anyone who has owned at least $2,000 worth of stock in a company for one year to propose a shareholder resolution. So it's not just a fund company or a fund or a big investor that can do it, but a small investor can do it. Now, that's had a lot of impact. In fact, many of the resolutions that have garnered significant support from shareholders have been proposed by individual investors. I happen to know one, and it's kind of unfortunate because I can't divulge all of the details of this particular engagement, but I know directly of an investor, small investor, $2,000 in a major company recently who simply asked them in the proposal to produce what she called an ESG report. So similar to sustainability, but she said, I'd like for you to produce an ESG report for investors that addresses the ESG risks that you face in your industry. The, the company called her up and said, we're not sure what you mean by that. So she said, okay, look at the SASB, go to sasb.org and talk to them about it and figure it out from that. They said, okay, they called her back and said, if you will withdraw the resolution, we will start working on it. And just recently they've released their ESG uh, first ESG report. So individual investors can have an impact. Now, the reason I kind of said interesting question for now, and here's how I'd answer it right now, is that the SEC, unfortunately, is currently considering a rule that would make it harder for individual shareholders to do this. In fact, they want to ratchet up the amount of stock that you need to own in a company for one year to $20,000 from $2,000. And then it would slide down to $2,000 if you held the company for five years and you could still, you know, propose a resolution then. So the SEC has not viewed the, the whole shareholder engagement progress that has been made all that uh, favorably uh, so far. And they're considering ways to kind of shut that down. But it's, it's created quite a lot of uh, opposition among many investors. And I, it remains to be seen whether they'll follow through on the rule hmm. that they've uh, proposed. We'll return to the show in just a moment. All right, so what are some of the next really big goals that you're saving for? Maybe you're saving for a down payment on a home. Maybe you're saving to buy your next car in cash or to at least make a pretty big down payment on your next car. Maybe you're saving for a kid's college fund or for your own college fund. Well, there's an app called Monarch that makes it easy to help you reach your financial goals. In fact, the Wall Street Journal named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com Paula. Monarch has a very simple, intuitive design, 
They have loads of built-in features that help you collaborate with your spouse or partner, with your financial advisor. You know, you can invite them to your account at no extra cost. They'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. You can customize it to look exactly like you want it to look like. You can customize the types of notifications that you get. You know, I've set mine up so that I only see the big ticket stuff. I personally don't want to see the little things. I just want to see big ticket items. So I've set up my notifications accordingly. But you can do it however you prefer. You can change the layout of your dashboard. You can make it your own. And Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Paula. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash Paula for your extended 30-day free trial. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. Are you a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Let's talk about the types of fees that are typically associated with these funds. If a person wanted to buy an ESG-focused fund, what typical expense ratio or range of expense ratios might they see? So here's what I would say about that. They may have to pay a little more. The reasons are fairly complex. I mean, first of all, if you think about passive funds, and there are passive ESG funds out there, many of them, in fact, and really the way they work vis-a-vis a a standard sort of market cap-based index fund is that they say, okay, well, we're going to keep the overall market-based sector weightings about the same as you would see from a standard passive fund, but we're going to we're going to focus on ESG leaders in every industry. So, you know, that's typically the way what an ESG uh, passive ESG fund would would look like. Well, a passive market cap-based weighted um, fund out there today costs almost literally nothing. So, yes, any ESG index fund is going to be a little more expensive than that. However, there are those types of funds, ESG, passive, uh, market-weighted index funds available for about nine basis points now, as low as nine basis points. And it's you, you could find a combination of those that would give you an overall equity portfolio covering U.S. stocks and international stocks for a price ranging from nine basis points to 20 basis points. So, you know, it's not as cheap as the rock bottom prices of passive index funds today, but it's pretty darn cheap. And it really doesn't 
affect performance in any real significant way. In fact, just last year, what I found in my sustainable funds landscape report is that most ESG index funds outperformed the S&P 500. So your performance is good. You are paying a little more. Now, the other thing I would say is that on actively managed funds, you really shouldn't expect to pay more for a sustainable fund than a conventional fund. They're about the same. But I will say this. I, I know of a an advisor I just talked to last week who she had just transformed her entire advisory practice away from conventional funds to using ESG sustainable funds. You know, and it's very interesting because she said, you know, I was a little concerned about it. I, I thought, you know, I've got 330 some clients in my practice and, you know, surely there are going to be some that are going to go, no, I don't, I don't want to change. I don't want to make this shift. I've never, you know, these are not people that have come in and talked to her about it or anything, but she announced the shift and she said, you know, if you, if you want to opt out, feel free, not a single client out of 330 clients opted out. But she said, in full disclosure, the models that we're going to use for you, using ESG funds, getting away from conventional funds, is going to average about 53 basis points in expenses, and that's up from about 45 basis points for the funds that she used to use. You know, So she said she wasn't necessarily choosing funds based on trying to keep the expenses exactly the same. But that's a, you know, I thought that gives you a kind of a, a sense that, you know, these funds are competitive on fees. It's not like it's a, you know, it's not like <laughs> the difference in cost between like organic foods at the supermarket versus <laughs> conventional and stuff like that. You know, you shouldn't expect to pay a big premium mm. for a sustainable fund. Let's just put it that way. Tell me more about performance. You mentioned that ESG-focused funds outperformed the S&P 500. Over what duration of time was that? Uh, well, I was just referring to last year, but I've got some interesting stats on how funds, how sustainable funds have performed uh, recently. First of all, one of the things that I think is really interesting about sustainable funds is I think there's a case to be made for them like in general terms because they're addressing these ESG risks in ways that perhaps investors who are not considering ESG are not able to incorporate, that in times where we have high volatility, it's possible that these funds should fare pretty well as, you know, hold up pretty well. The other side of it is that many of them are not that old. So they, they weren't around during the financial crisis. So you can't look back into that major bear market and, and see what their performance is. But year to date through February, ESG funds on the whole had outperformed. And in fact, I looked at core large cap ESG index funds through the end of February. Every single one of them had outperformed the S&P 500 in the uh, international all but one. So I think it was 11 out of 12 outperformed. And even in emerging markets, there's there, there are three ESG index funds and the, all three of those outperformed the emerging markets index funds. So they're they're doing well in difficult markets. Last year, one of the ways I looked at it, broadening it out a bit, was, was to look at how all the ESG funds did relative to their Morningstar categories. So, you know, if it's an ESG US large cap fund, it's put into the category with all the large cap funds that focus on the US. If it's small cap, same story, international, and so on. The returns of 65% of ESG funds last year 
were in their category's top half. So overall, 50% of funds, you know, by definition, <laughs> make it into the top half. For, for ESG funds, it was 65%. And the same is true over more or less over the last three and five years. In the over three years, 67% of sustainable funds finished in the top half of their category. Even if I narrowed that down a little more and said, how many very top performers versus poor performers, 40% of... ESG funds finished in the top quartile of their category over the last three years. So overall, 25% of funds, by definition, in the top quartile for ESG, it was 40. Only 12%, by contrast, finished in the bottom quartile. So overall, 25% are in the bottom quartile. Only 12% of, e of uh, ESG funds. That's for three years. For five years, the numbers were 64% in the top half 32% in the top quartile, 13% in the bottom quartile. So overall, they've performed well. I mean, I, I hesitate to say it's a proof positive of ongoing outperformance from ESG funds, but it, it certainly helps dispel the myth that a lot of people have, and we could maybe talk about the genesis of that, but the myth that somehow this is a recipe for underperformance, we're just not seeing that in any respect. And why did that myth originate? Did that used to be the case, or has that always been a myth? To a large extent, I think it's always been a myth. The, the main reason for it is tobacco, interestingly enough, that back in the day, but you know, when I talked about the 1990s and you know some of these early days of SRI investing, you know, one of the big exclusions that was made was to avoid companies that were involved with tobacco. And at that time, tobacco stocks outperformed. And they've long been considered a very good defensive kind of stock. People didn't necessarily, you know, smoke less tobacco during recessions, you know, maybe even maybe even smoke more, who knows? And it's a strong dividend paying stock and that sort of thing. So the idea of removing tobacco from a portfolio in this sort of era from, say, 19, the 1990s through maybe the financial crisis was considered like, wow, that's a recipe for underperformance. And, and in fact, um, you know, during that time, tobacco stocks just as a group outperformed the overall indexes. Interestingly, though, since then, if I'm looking at the 10-year trailing 10-year performance of tobacco stocks as of the end of February, they have underperformed uh, over the last 10 years. And the, over the last three years, they've underperformed massively. The the um, MSCI World Index, which is, you know, a broad-based index of large cap stocks over the last three years has averaged 7.24% annualized. Tobacco stocks minus 10.38. Uh, so <laughs> they've, they've underperformed massively during the more recent. But back during that previous period, the idea that, wow, you're, you know, by excluding something and you're excluding them for non-financial reasons, right? People that were excluding tobacco or investors excluding tobacco were not saying, oh, I don't think this is a good investment from a financial standpoint. They're like, I don't, you know, ethically want to own tobacco. And so anytime you're doing that, the, the sort of idea was that, wow, you're, you're limiting your investment universe for non-financial reasons. That's a risk of underperformance. And, and yes, that's what happened with tobacco in that period of time. But what we can see now tobacco has underperformed for the last 10 years is really what your risk is, is tracking error. 
you know, that, that you're not going to track the index and it could be positive, it could be negative. And so in addition to that, so that's one thing that's kind of, I think, helped with that myth and sort of the idea that, that underperformance is not, is not sort of predetermined in any way through exclusions. The other thing is that we have a lot more sophistication in the way we put together portfolios today. So if you want to exclude tobacco, there are ways to re-optimize a portfolio by replacing the tobacco stocks with non-tobacco stocks that nonetheless might have some of the same financial characteristics as tobacco stocks. So, you know, it's easy to do now. 25 years ago, it wasn't as easy to do that. So from all that, and I think from the from the standpoint of the fact that sustainable investing or SRI investing is, you know, which we called it back then, you know, never really was, uh, there, there weren't a lot of people that were that interested in it. So it's relatively easy, I think, for investment intermediaries to just kind of give people, <laughs> you know, give them the wave off and say, well, eh, you don't really want to do that. You could underperform. It's not something you want to do. If you're if you're so interested in these kinds of things, then why don't you just invest in a standard way and, you know, think about how you give money to charity and things like that to have an impact with your money. Well, thank you for all of that insight. Where can people find you and find out more about this topic if they would like to learn more? Yeah. Well, um, Paula, we have, uh, I write about sustainable investing on Morningstar.com, usually on a weekly or biweekly basis. I also have a, a blog called the ESG Investor that's uh, available through Medium. And I mentioned a couple of papers that we've just put out that you can find online by just uh, searching for them and getting, and you can download them. One is called Sustainable Funds U.S. Landscape Report, which uh, gives you kind of an overview of all the funds that are out there that you could uh, potentially invest in. And then the other one is called uh, 2019 ESG Proxy Voting Trends. It's a little bit more of a dive into that area, but one that uh, some folks might find interesting. So both of those are available on download from Morningstar.com. Thank you, John. What are some of the key takeaways that we got from this conversation? First, John says that there are three types of sustainable funds. So let's recap what those are. Number one are ESG-focused funds. And I'll let him describe what that means. These are funds that they may pursue from a sort of investment strategy standpoint. They may pursue a growth strategy, a value strategy. They could be passive funds or or actively managed funds, but the common element that they have is that they put front and center this analysis of ESG factors when they make investment decisions. An ESG-focused fund is a fund in which the fund managers consider how well the companies in a portfolio handle the various ESG risks and opportunities that they face. Now, these funds may also use broad-based exclusions, so, for example, they may exclude tobacco stocks, gun stocks, or controversial weapons manufacturers. Most ESG-focused funds actively engage with the companies that they own and might introduce shareholder resolutions. And so those ESG-focused funds, to recap, are one of the three types of sustainable funds. The second type is impact and thematic funds. These are funds that, in addition to their kind of underlying ESG focus, they may be focused also on a broader themes. These are ESG funds that might focus on a specific theme, such as gender diversity funds 
fossil fuel-free funds. So those thematic funds are the second of the three types of sustainable funds that are out there. And then the third type is a sustainable sector fund. Those would be funds that are a little more focused around kind of a quasi-sector. There's no like officially defined sustainable sector, like an energy sector, utilities, et cetera. But these are funds that really focus on, I would say, companies that are creating products or services that will you know, hasten the transition to a just, sustainable, low-carbon economy. These might be funds that, for example, focus on renewable energy companies or focus on environmental services companies involved in things like enhancing energy efficiency. These are examples of sustainable sector funds. And so, to recap, the three types of sustainable funds are ESG funds, impact and thematic funds, and sustainable sector funds. And while we're recapping, we should also give an honorable mention to ESG consideration funds. This is a fourth category. And these are conventional funds that are adopting ESG as a consideration in their investment process. So they're not ESG funds per se, but they are conventional funds that are keeping an eye on ESG. And many companies are becoming aware that this is important to shareholders and stakeholders and are becoming more proactive about how they're managing ESG risks. Just last year, more than 500 pre-existing conventional mutual funds in the United States added language in their prospectus saying that, yes, we now do consider ESG factors in our investment process. So you can check to see if some of the conventional funds that you already hold may have moved in this direction. It's possible that you're already holding some ESG consideration funds. So you can check the prospectus of any fund that you're holding to see whether or not they consider those ESG factors. So that recap of the landscape is one of the major takeaways that we got from this conversation with Dr. John Hale. The next major takeaway, I'll call this knowledge tidbit number five, is that you can become an engaged shareholder. At least for now, if you own $2,000 in stock in one company for at least one year, then you have a voice and you can use that voice to propose a shareholder resolution. Now, as John noted, the SEC is considering a rule that would increase this $2,000 limit up to $20,000. But that rule has not been adopted yet. So right now, if you want to become a more engaged shareholder, you only need $2,000 worth of stock in that company for one year. It's possible for anyone who has owned at least $2,000 worth of stock in a company for one year to propose a shareholder resolution. So it's not just a fund company or a fund or a big investor that can do it, but a small investor can do it. So that is a really interesting takeaway from this conversation. And finally, the sixth major takeaway is that it is a myth that ESG funds underperform. There is an impression out there that ESG funds do worse, but that is actually not the case. Year to date through February, ESG funds on the whole had outperformed. And in fact, I looked at core large cap ESG index funds through the end of February. Every single one of them had outperformed the S&P 500 in the uh, international, all but one. So 
I think it was 11 out of 12 outperformed. And even in emerging markets, there's there, there are three ESG index funds and the, all three of those outperformed the emerging markets index funds. Now, that being said, the ESG funds that are out there are pretty young. So it's yet to be seen how they will perform in a bear market or in a recession. We're about to see that right now. So wait six months and ask again. We're about to witness how these funds perform in a down market. But what we do know is that during the bull run that just ended, these ESG funds outperformed. And the myth that ESG funds underperform originates from a time back when tobacco stocks were excluded from funds. 25 years ago, the performance of tobacco stocks were excellent. And so excluding these high-performing tobacco stocks from funds, it seemed crazy. It seemed like that would drag down performance. That was how this impression that ESG funds underperform originated. But now, 25 years in the future, that's an antiquated idea. And for what it's worth, tobacco stocks have now underperformed over the last 10 years. So if you want to invest in sustainable funds, don't assume that that necessarily means that you're going to be giving up some performance for it. Again, these funds are young. We haven't yet seen how they're going to perform in a bear market or in a recession. We're about to find that out. But what we do know is that when the market was doing well, ESG funds were doing even better. So that is our show for today. We will be airing an episode on Thursday, PSA Thursday, in which we talk all about the current economy, the bear market, the upcoming recession, how to build an emergency fund in the middle of an emergency. Uh, we're going to cover all of that on the upcoming PSA Thursday episode. So make sure that you hit subscribe or follow in whatever app you're using to listen to this podcast so that you don't miss this Thursday's upcoming public service announcement episode that's aimed at helping us all together get through this pandemic. As most of you know, I tested positive for COVID-19. I am recovering. As I've been recording this, I keep hitting pause and going into coughing fits. My microphone is probably a biohazard at this point. So yeah, I'm, I'm recovering, but it's very slow. I'm still coughing a lot. I'm still fatigued. I have a fraction of the energy that I used to have just a couple of weeks ago. But I'm one of the lucky ones because I am recovering and because I didn't have to get hospitalized. That makes me one of the lucky ones. And again, I want to thank everybody who has reached out with a message of support. People have been so overwhelmingly kind and generous and supportive. So thank you to everybody. And I will see you in the PSA Thursday episode. I want to give a shout out to the sponsors who made today's episode possible. Billy, Policy Genius, Radius Bank, and Gusto. Uh, I'm especially appreciative of the sponsors sticking with us right now at a time when, you know, times are tough for a lot of companies. We've had a lot of sponsors pull out or ask if they can cancel their contracts uh, because they themselves are in a bind. So again, a big thank you to Billy, Policy Genius, Radius Bank, and Gusto. If you need any of their services, please show them your support. And for a complete list of all of our sponsors, including all of the deals and the discounts that they offer, you can find all of that at affordanything.com slash sponsors. That's affordanything.com slash sponsors. Um, if you want to talk to other people in the community, this is a time when a lot of people are joining together online to talk about how they are handling everything 
from working from home to finding sources of side income to deciding what to do with their money, if they should hold it in cash or invest it or use it to pay off debt. So if you want to talk to other members of this community about that, you can do so at affordanything.com slash community. That is a very active platform that we have in which our community gets together to talk about all of these topics and more. So again, affordanything.com slash community. It's free and it's how you can connect with other people in this community to talk about money and work and life. Thank you again for tuning in. My name is Paula Pant. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with a friend or a family member. And I will catch you in the PSA Thursday episode. See you there.